Hello and welcome to episode 15 of Songs from a Padded Envelope. My name is Steve and I'm here with co-host Ben. Hello, Ben. Hi there, Steve. Clicking your pen. <laughs> I'm always clicking my pens, mate. <laughs> Sorry. Do you want to do that one again? <laughs> no, no, because I like the little rhyme that came out. Uh, okay. <laughs> I'm holding up four pens. No, I'm holding up one. There's two. Why are you three. holding up four pens? I don't, you know, I like to have the pens here. Is this a new segment, Ben's Pens? Uh, I don't think it's going to work. <laughs> <laughs> Our guest for this episode is Kevin Lyons. Kevin is a regular contributor on the very excellent Evolution of Horror podcast. And it was during his most recent appearance that he mentioned in passing that he used to play in bands. And that was all the incentive required to reach out to Kev. And once again, Ben, we found ourselves spending time with a warm, funny and highly creative person. Oh, we really did. I mean, that the so the first view that we got of Kev that came up on the screen, and there's this man surrounded by racks and racks of films and DVDs. And if we didn't have an inkling already about his obsessive nature, there was a huge signpost there. And um, I think as um, music fans and collectors, it, it hit home straight away with us, didn't it? And the conversation just uh, just led on from there beautifully. It did. And, it, and, and it's another left turn for the show in that Kevin's sharing a piece of unfinished music and an ambient piece at that. And I think, I think the conversation around this genre of music and how Kevin arrived into it is really fascinating. It was. I think um, a lot of the conversation and the sort of the span of it when the listener comes to it is going to be very much about the kind of um, the journey um, for this individual, you know, someone that's taken a kind of long view, no sort of defined length, no maps or kind of charts, and then a certainty when they've arrived at this point after many years and found the music and the creative space that works for them. I was really impressed by Kev's honesty um, when he was sort of talking about his early days of music making and working with bands and maybe not making the most of the opportunities that presented were presented to him and his bandmates because he was sort of driving things in a way that was maybe a bit unhelpful yeah he was very really honest and open and kind of reflective on how ego can be um a really damaging influence i mean of, of course we know that ego can sometimes is a very necessary component of um people for creativity and for for making music making rock music but in this instance he was saying like no this this didn't work and looking back on that um and seeing sort of um, juxtaposing that against where he is now in terms of the creative partnerships that he's found and um, an, an acknowledgement of how important they have become to him yeah and developing an ability to collaborate and to you know be open to the ideas of others and not being solely focused on you know my way or the highway yeah and we've um it is something that the conversations have begin to began to touch upon um is this importance of, of finding those kind of writing part writing partnerships that work for you and you and i both know that through the you know the connections that we've had and the music that we've made over the years about how life-changing and life-affirming that can be. Yeah, we would not be sat here right now. We would not, indeed. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I, I really enjoyed his reference to the tube and 
uh, sort of name checking that TV show because um, for folks of a particular age, in a particular age bracket, that was a huge source of inspiration. I mean, inspiration very much like um, Dave in last week's episode talking about John Peel. I mean, the tube for a while had a very similar, played a very similar role. Oh, it was stunning. It was, um, um, it was such, um, such an influential program. And I remember it was on a Friday night, wasn't it? And you'd often be, you'd watch it. It was a long program. We're taking lots of stuff. There'd always be something of interest in there. And then you'd head off, well, we'd head off out to the pub like later in the night and be catching up with mates and say, did you see, um, I mean, I remember the Gun Club who were one of the sort of formative bands for me growing up. And they were on the they were on the tube and going and meeting with my mate who'd also we discovered the Gun Club when we were like thirteen years old and there they were on this mainstream TV program. Um, it was oh, it was brilliant. I mean, we really we really could do with something like that again. Oh yeah, God, that would be amazing. You've just put me in mind of uh, uh, one of the interviews from Main Stage when we were talking to Adam Mould from Pop Elite itself and how there those guys and the guys from the Wonder Stuff would kick around together. And they met up much as you just described at the pub, having watched the tube. And they were go, they they were excitedly talking to each other, saying, "Did you see that band on the tube? They weren't they amazing?" And they were going, "Yeah, yeah, yeah." The three Johns <laughs> and, and the other and the other group were going, "No, King, King." Yeah, and they King. said, and I think Popolite itself went the three Johns route, and the Wonder Stuff went the King route. Oh uh, yeah, it was it was a lovely <laughs> I'll have to moment. Try and dig that clip out. It well, really was, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's great, yeah. it's great, and and a and a real hearty chuckle at that point, yeah. Yeah. Oh, great. <laughs> um, yeah, it was a treat to speak to Kev, and I, I also particularly enjoyed getting another reference in for um, the good old Tascam four track. I think that's three or four times it's appeared in the. I thought you were going to say another reference for the Cardiacs for a minute, then, because you seem well, to try and crowbar that into every episode. If the opportunity presents itself, I'm there. I'm the Lineker of uh, Cardiac's references. I'm just there on the goal line waiting. Uh, yeah, yeah. No, uh, the reference, the reference to the Tascam four track is great, isn't it? And we, um, I mean, in flotation, me, me and Paul both bought one of those many, many years ago, and we had that same journey about trying to bounce tracks down and down and down, and and making this music you know, over the course of days or weeks and arriving at something that we thought that was absolutely stunning, gathering people together to play it to them and and playing it and they're going, we can't hear anything because there's this huge <laughs> mush of noise. What, what do you mean you can't hear anything? Yeah, anyway, yeah. But they, uh, yeah, they've become highly, highly sought after and highly valued now, haven't they? They have. We, I mean, it's a shame we can't get some sort of sponsorship by uh, Tascam 4Tracks, the number of references that we've got. <laughs> of course. Um, well, as you'll hear in the show, Kev's film review and archive work is highly recommended and there's links to uh, those in the show notes. So our thanks to Kev for coming on the show and, and being such a fantastic guest. And uh, so we'll go over and listen to this episode now, episode 15 of Songs from a Padded Envelope with Kevin Lyons. Uh, right, I'm Kevin Lyons and I record... I think what people would call ambient music, uh, I prefer the word electronic. I'm not a big one for labels, but I, I'd call it electronic music. And the piece of music that you're going to hear is something called The Moon Rises Over Berlin, which is a reference to the Berlin School of Electronics, Tangerine Dream and so on, a huge influence on me. And uh, hopefully you'll be able to hear that in the piece of music with the sequencers and the ambient washes and so on. Um, this is a piece from 
a work in progress, which is going to be called Cities in Flight. And it's a, brace yourselves, it's a concept album. Yeah, I know. I'm an old hippie. I can't help it. And uh, <laughs> this is going to be the centerpiece of that that concept album. So, uh, yes, it'll be the first time it's been heard virtually anywhere. I think. I think. I think. I think. If it wasn't a concept album, we'd have been disappointed, Kev. Oh, I do, I, <laughs> listen. I'm, I'm a prog rock fan. I can't do anything that hasn't got a concept attached to it somewhere. You know. So. Uh, I'm obliged to ask if you are a, a cardiacs fan. In I am. Case. Yes, very much so. Yeah. Oh, Kev, oh, this, is, this is so good. <laughs> oh. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you say you say that's great. Wait, wait till I start rambling on about yes and Genesis. It won't be quite so great or cool or groovy then, will it? So you know, <laughs> <laughs> I'm not allowed to divert into cardiacs, and this is the earliest I've ever got it in as well. Which is often. brilliant. Oh, good man, keep yeah, it up. Keep going. Any, I'm happy any... with it. Ignore him. We'll keep going. That's good. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> he has done for the last twenty years. <laughs> you know, I took Ben to a. I took Ben. Ben and I went to a cardiac show. Ben's first cardiac show at the uh town and country club oh, yes. i believe it was and and uh, uh he left me there <laughs> he, he and the, everyone else yeah. went I've, I've had that on a few occasions yeah. when i sort of said to people come and watch it you'll love these guys and i've walked home on my own at the end of it you know so yeah. uh, i'm yeah, very I familiar with that i wasn't the only one to walk out <laughs> <laughs> no you weren't no yeah. oh we've deviated so well why not? brilliant why not? um well I, 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 um, I was interested in you sort of uh, setting the up the inf the influence for the piece of music you're going to share at the end because I did wonder whether or not it was actually linked to uh, um, Nosferatu. Yeah, I mean Popol Vuh, you know that they do the soundtrack for the, the Nosferatu remake. I'm a huge fan of them as well, and in fact, there's a, a track knocking around somewhere called Om, A U M, Om, Om, which. To be honest, it would probably be actionable if Pop or Vu actually heard it. I think, you know, they'd actually say, yeah, that's gone a step too far over our margin. Straight rip off. I mean, these guys are huge influences on me. And that soundtrack in particular is a huge influence. The the opening track from that is extraordinary. Well, we um, the idea to invite you on the podcast stemmed from you mentioning on the brilliant evolution of horror podcasts that you used to play in bands. So we're going to take you all, all the way back to when you first started making music. It, and, and when did that all start for you? God, that would have started around the age of 14. Um, I got my first guitar. My dad was a guitarist. Well, I say he was a guitarist. He played guitar in a skiffle band when he was doing his national service in uh, Gibraltar in the 1950s. And when I say a skiffle band... I think I really mean a bunch of lads who are away from home trying to bond over something. They'd all got guitars and one could play the piano. So they just got together and, and made music. And I was thinking earlier on today, I never saw my dad actually play the guitar. Even when I got one, he never played it. He just happy for me to, to have this guitar. I got into the guitar because of listening to his record collection. He'd got a lot of the shadows and a lot of the younger people listening to this will be going, what's he on about? But the shadows, you know, back in the 50s, the 60s, they were immense. And they were doing things with, it's, it's very uncool to talk about people like Hank Marvin these days. But the things he did with a guitar was absolutely magical. I was aware of guitars, born in 1962. So I grew up listening to the Beatles, the Stones, the Who, and so on on the radio. But to hear this guy doing something so melodic, with this guitar 
was just such an inspiration to me. And I had to have a guitar and I had to have, just had to have one. The very first one I had, and no one ever believes me, but it was this thing called a Thunder Strat Disaster. I'm not kidding you. That's what it was called, a Thunder Strat Disaster. I swear to God, it was made of balsa wood. I mean, it was bloody That's awful. Brilliant. It was really <laughs> bad. That, that ended up getting stripped down and spray painted and never put back together again until I got a much better guitar, which was a, a Strat copy because obviously it was Hank Marvin. I had to have a Strat copy. And, um, oh, yeah. and that was it. That's where it started, just um, learning how to play Hank Marvin riffs, basically. So were you teaching yourself by like playing along to the records or have you yep. got lessons or how's it working? No, I never had any lessons. I would, you know, I had people who were better than me at guitar that come along and say, here you go, Kev, try this out. But mostly it was just, yeah, sitting in front of a record player or, you know, sort of going to the local music shop, buying some sheet music that I didn't understand. And, um, literally sort of writing on the sheet music a b c sharp whatever you know whatever the notes were because i couldn't read music which was a bit of a, a bit of a drawback when you're trying to to read off sheet music but yeah so it was all self-taught it was all just trying things out trial and error and to this day i'm still finding out things about what i'm playing there's still things i'm doing now and i think oh that's what i've been doing for you know the last 40 years some you know 12 year old on on youtube has just shown me that which is which is quite lovely i mean i i like that it's, it's nice that i'm still learning what i'm doing you know oh absolutely yeah yeah and and were, so when you after you got your guitar were other musicians sort of flocking to your house to come to start bands with you and write songs oh christ no god no just the opposite i um i did a jam session at school so uh, about a year probably less than that after getting the guitar and it literally was just a typical 70s um, jam session it was a bunch of bunch of little kids who were 15 we just started playing uh, we started playing a blues riff and a couple of hours later we stopped because we were exhausted. It was all made up. There was nothing. Nobody knew any songs. We just knew how to do a 12 bar blues and off we went. And we were in the, in the school hall and people would come in and look at us and think, you know, who are these idiots? And that was my first sort of live experience. But there was, we, uh, yeah, I did start a group not long after leaving school. And basically because I couldn't play very well, and nor could the other people involved in it, we decided we'd be the new Hawkwind because we liked Hawkwind and Hawkwind weren't very complicated and we'd got a synthesizer, so we'd be the new Hawkwind. So, you know, we wrote a lot of these songs where you got these sort of chugging riffs going away over and over and over, lots of sort of, lots of um, sort of drug-influenced lyrics written by a group of people who'd never even been near a drug, but we thought it sounded pretty cool anyway. And then just occasionally these sort of farts and whoops on a synthesizer. And that was pretty much us, you know, it was uh, an extension of our jamming experiences. We just sort of played for hours and hours. What was this band called? We, I think that one, you're going to have to brace yourself. There's a lot of pretension coming up here Excellent. on the prog rock band, as I mentioned. This is, going to get, this is going to get unbearably pretentious. We were called... Siberia, but with a P. Oh, <laughs> oh, let's take a moment to enjoy yeah. that. <laughs> I know. P S Siberia. Siberia. I mean that's um yeah, it's it is no wonder we didn't get any gigs really. <laughs> oh, that's beautiful. <laughs> but you know, pretension was part of it that about then. We're talking about late seventies here, so you know, punk had happened, but this was on the Isle of Wight, which is what where I was living at the time. And punk barely bothered the Isle of Wight. Most things barely bothered the Isle of Wight, to be fair. And um, 
yeah so we were still very much in that sort of hippie prog rock sort of psychedelic phase so siberia it just seemed like an obvious name to call ourselves looking back on it now you think god what an idiot but you know there's gonna be a lot of that tonight looking back and thinking <laughs> bloody hell what an idiot <laughs> i'm looking forward to the band names that that followed on from siberia which is <laughs> that's just brilliant when, when you when you think back to those first times of getting in the room with people and playing music and making those connections for the first time what it, what does it bring back for you kev a mix of fear because i had no idea what i was doing and i think like a lot of you know musicians starting out you blag you go in there telling them you know yeah i'm, I'm the new Jimi hendrix so you can barely play a, a, a 12 bar blues but you sort of blag your way through it you make things up so there's a bit of fear but also this huge elation that you could do this that you know you could make these noises and other people would make noises with you and we'd all be roughly in time and in tune with each other and there's just that excitement of we're rock stars you know we're sort of 15 we're 16 and we're rock stars this is it we're, we're going to take on the world so yeah that was um a feeling which i don't think i've ever really had since with music because you get a little bit jaded with it you know you're kind of like oh yeah another gig tonight another you know another band to play with but those early early get-togethers and the early sort of performances were so exciting but terrifying at the same time were there many opportunities to play on the Isle of Wight? Not really, no. Um, we ended up later on sort of hiring our own venues. We'd hire social clubs and halls and whatever and play play whenever we could. There were pubs that took you on, um, but they, you know, they kind of wanted the, the latest hits, whatever it was in the 80s they wanted to hear. They didn't want to hear these sort of weird hippies making these noises and later on when we turned into you know i, I discovered cocteau twins later on and thought i know we'll, we'll be cocteau twins now and that definitely wasn't going to fly on the isle of Wight. that was you know you, you're not going to stand in the corner of a pub doing songs by cocteau twins you know <laughs> just no so you had to hire places and it was okay we enjoyed that that was good it was all part of the fun of putting on a show you know i'm, I'm moved move to ask what the cocteau twins influenced band was called well yeah brace yourselves again for a long time we were called memory theater we hated being called the memory theater because i didn't mind being called the memory theater in the early days but then i i heard an interview with cocteau twins where they said we're not the cocteau twins we're cocteau twins so i thought i'm having that so we're not the memory theater we're memory theatre. Well, cardiacs and, um, fans get very exercised if you say the cardiacs. Oh, absolutely. You've got yeah, to get yeah. these things right. Indeed. Absolutely. It's, yeah, it's yeah. A little bit... <laughs> but memory theatre, I thought it was quite a quite nice name for a group, and I, I may even resurrect that one day. You never know. It's a little bit of a side turn from Hawkwind to, to Cocteau Twins. So how do you get there? Well, it was all... What happened was, when we learned to play a bit, we thought, okay, we can stop being Hawkwind. We'll be the new Led Zeppelin now because we can play a bit. And then we could learn to play a bit more and we'd be the new, the new yes, that's great. Okay, that's great. And then one day I was just, it's 1983, I remember this. It was quite quite quickly watching The Tube. I know you guys oh, remember yeah. The Tube, the right. Channel 4 TV show. And, you know, it was, it was a weekly ritual. You know, I videotaped it on Fridays. And for whatever reason, one evening in 1983, I'd, I'd gone out on a Friday night and I came home and I was watching The, the Tube and I was playing it back on the video. 
and God, this was so long ago. The remote control was on a bit of string. You know, it was one of those real old bits of, you know, you had to, it wasn't a remote control. It just means you, you're about a foot closer to the, the sofa while you're watching. You know, that's all it means. And I was sort of zooming through, zooming through. There are lots of things I didn't like. And this weird couple came on. And I thought, oh, I don't like the look of them. And my finger slipped off the fast forward button. And it was Cocteau Twins. And they were doing Musette and Drums. Mm. One of my favorite Cocteau songs now. And I was just gobsmacked. I thought, why are we playing 16 million notes a second when this guy's playing one note? And it sounds extraordinary. And then she started to sing. And that was kind of... The, the beginning of a whole new era after that. I, sp I spent years trying to find the new Elizabeth Fraser. We didn't even come close, but, you know, it's... um. So, yeah, I did, I discovered them just by accident. I just, it was literally overnight. I thought, I don't want to do all that that stuff anymore. I want to do this. This is what, what it's all about now. Oh, she's wonderful, isn't she? She is. She's just oh, amazing. Remarkable. Very few occasions I've ever sort of shed tears at a concert, but most of them have been at Cocteau Twins concerts. I've, I've become quite emotional since she starts to sing and just... Uh, Oh, God, yeah. I could. In fact, I want to stop this now and I want to go and listen to some cocktail twins. So I'll be back in five minutes. Okay, fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> so, yes, it is. It's a strange journey from Hawkwind to cocktail twins. But, you know, that's that's all part of the joy of doing this kind of music, I think. You know, just don't don't put any limits on yourself. Whatever you fancy, whatever sort of inspires you that morning, you go out and do it, you know. Did you take this band out live? A couple of times, yeah. Um, we had one particularly memorable experience where we were on the bottom of a bill and unbeknownst to us, there was a skinhead band with a second on the bill. And I should point out at this point that, that our singer at the time was black. And so, of course, this went down well. The, you know, we went out on stage, the curtains opened. And there's just this sea of skinheads in total silence staring back at us. And I was very shy at the time, and our singer was very shy at the time. And there was just this awkward silence, which felt like it went on for hours. And it didn't. It must have been a matter of seconds. And she just looked at them and said, well, you weren't expecting this, were you? <laughs> and I'm like, okay, off we go. And so we start playing. We start doing this, this sort of weird stuff with all these clanging guitars and ambient sounds and stuff. And they really liked it. They were really into it. It was absolutely bizarre. And we came off stage and we're in the wings and I'm sort of having all sorts of, you know, unusual bowel movements by this time. I'm absolutely terrified. I don't think I've ever been so scared in my life. I'm thinking, you know, okay, it's been a good life, you know. We're not going to get out of this one alive. It's been okay. I have a few regrets. And we could hear them kicking off in the auditorium. There was this awful racket going on. And their band had gone on. I think I think the, the lead singer was called Brian Damage. <laughs> and it was like, it was a real sort of punk skinhead, sort of awful racket. And they were just throwing whatever they could get their hands on from the auditorium, lobbing it onto the stage. And we thought, let's, let's get out of here. And the guy who'd put this, this evening on said, no, you're not going anywhere. They like you. Get back out there. What? Sod <laughs> off. You're not going out there. <laughs> no way. And he said, if you don't go back out, you're not getting paid. So, okay. So, you know, I had a chat with the others. I said, yeah, come on, we'll, we'll, we'll do it. We'll do it. We'll be all right. And we were behind the curtain. And we could see the curtain moving from the impact of whatever it was they were throwing, including a body at one point. A body actually came through the curtain and landed on the, on the stage unconscious. 
and the, 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 the curtains opened. We started to play again. And we, we, I don't think we got past the first bar. We thought, nope. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we got legs, half was going off one stage, on the other stage, the other going off the other. And it was absolutely terrifying. But uh, yeah, so we didn't play many of those sort of joint band gigs. <laughs> it was too scary. So, um, <laughs> How, um, just move, going back to um, uh, your earlier bands, were any of them, mm -hmm. did you go into the studio with any of them? We had a um, little Tascam four-track recorder that we used to hire from a local music shop. I mean, this was the 80s, you know, one of those, those uh, four-track recorders. They cost hundreds of pounds mm. back then. It was. It, I still marvel at the fact that I'm sitting at the computer that I'm talking to you on now and I've got software that can have hundreds and hundreds of tracks yeah. on it. And back then we had four tracks on a cassette, which we used to ping pong down. So you'd record the bass and the drums, ping pong them onto a track, then record a couple of guitars and ping pong them. Then some folks. And by the time you'd finished with it, you could barely hear the drums and the bass. <laughs> it was just so awful. <laughs> <laughs> they kind of disappeared into this mush in the background. But that's all we had back then. You know, it was... Um, I think there were studios on the Isle of Wight, but we were quite poor and we never even looked into it. So we just did home, you know, these, these four track recordings, sadly, most of which, in fact, all of which are now sort of missing in action. I've got one really awful quality copy cassette, which is so badly faded. I can just about make out the tunes. Wow. And it's been a little project recently to try and re-record all of those using all the you know sort of fancy new technology that I've got now. But, um, but yeah, it was it was never in the studio, but we, there was an awful lot of us huddled around a, an overheating four track. Did those demos ever make it to the ears of other of people that might have taken the music further for you? We sent it out to several places. The only one I can remember, we, we sent it to 4AD when we were doing the cocktail <laughs> twin stuff and heard nothing at all from them. And we sent it to ZTT. Remember Zang Tung Tung? Oh, yeah. Um, and I had this postcard back from them, <laughs> which I treasured for years. Sadly, it's long gone. It was just basically it was a, a pre-printed postcard, which said, um, thank you for sending us your music. Please don't ever bother us again. <laughs> and that, that was what he was. That's what he got back from them. And I treasured that. I didn't want, I didn't, I had no ambition to be on a record label at all, but certainly not ZTT. You know? And it'd be like one of the other band members said, come on, these guys are kind of cool. Let's send it to them. And I treasured that for years. I think I'd have been more disappointed if they'd taken us on, to be honest. So. <laughs> oh, what a horrible thing to send out to somebody. It's just I, to be honest, if, if you were somebody who was really sort of hell-bent on making a living out of this and becoming the next big pop sensation, that could have crushed you. Mm. I think, you know, the fact that I was, I was just enjoying myself. I, later on, I took myself terribly seriously with, with the music and that sort of backfired with a lot of, of band members that just didn't want to do that but at the time i wasn't really thinking about having a career in music i just wanted to have fun playing the guitar you know and so to me it was kind of i got, I got the joke i understood it but i can imagine a lot of people were crushed if they re received a, a postcard like that so do you want to fast forward a bit to that point where you are where you do have the ambition to kind of make a career as a musician what happens yeah uh what happens my god um I become a bit of an arsehole, to be honest. Um, I become, I get a little bit too obsessed with the idea that we've got to do this my way or nobody else's way. And, you know, I've mentioned yes a couple of times. They they notoriously had a revolving door policy to 
you know, members of the band. It was very rare to have two consecutive albums with the same people on it. I never knew from one gig to the next who I was going to have in the band with me because I annoyed so many people by sort of saying, it's got to be done like this. This has got to be our way. I was very egotistical at the time. When you're young, this kind of happens, I think. You know, you suddenly get this idea in your head. What we're doing is brilliant. What we're doing is amazing. And I've got this vision and we've got to do it my way. We were, we were just this band on the Isle of Wight. We weren't, you know, we weren't the new Led Zeppelin. We weren't the new whatever, you know. But, um, yeah, I think I just got a little bit too bossy and a little bit too dogmatic about it. And I think if I'd have been a little bit, I know, a bit, a bit lighter about it, a little bit sort of chilled out, we might have got somewhere. Maybe, perhaps, I don't know. But uh, I think I alienated far too many people. There was about three people, I think, from that time that I'm still in contact with. One of them, a very good friend. Mm. Um, and I'm amazed they still talk to me, to be absolutely honest. <laughs> I was a monster at times. It was awful. So, um, were, there, were there plenty of people coming to see you play? Were you starting to generate a bit of a following? We were, yeah. Um I think people were getting a bit annoyed by turning up and not knowing who was going to be there that night. You know, they turn up at the memory theater, there'd be the name and they turn up and he's like, well, you know, that tall bloke's there, but who are all the other people? They weren't here last week, you know? So in my mind, that was a really nice thing in a way. I was kind of enjoying that fact that we were this, this, this sort of like little group, at this collective of people. And some people would turn up and some people wouldn't, and people were coming in and coming out but I think, yeah, if you turned up to a gig and you expected to see a band, you expect to see a band, don't you? You don't expect to see a bunch of strangers doing things differently to the way you did it last week. Because obviously, you know, if we've got a new singer in, they would sing, sometimes sing different lyrics to the same same tune. And I think that in the end, I think just people got a bit annoyed with us, to be honest. As, as indeed, I would be annoyed. I'd be annoyed if I turned up and bands were doing that. I'd, I'd get quite sort of antsy about that. I think it's only the fall that, that could really get away with that. <laughs> yes, probably. Yeah. <laughs> How close with, do you think you got to, to making the music that you imagined for, for Memory Theatre? You know, I never have, even with the stuff that I do on my own. I've never got close to what is in my head. It's... Um, in my head, these things are glorious, they're wonderful, they're fantastic. When I listen back to them, I think, yeah, that's not bad, that's okay, that's all right. And other people seem to like what, particularly the stuff I do now, the ambient stuff, people seem to like it. But, you know, in my head, it all sounds a bit more, just a bit more. You know, it is, and I suppose that that's true of most musicians. I know Cocteau Twins, who we mentioned earlier, they never go back and listen to the music that they that they did because they just can't stand hearing it. They want to go on to the next one because they think the next one would be what they really wanted to do. And a lot of bands, I think, are like that. You know, they don't, they're never happy with what they produce. And in some ways, I suppose you never should be. Yeah. Because if you're becoming happy with what you're producing, you're becoming complacent. And you shouldn't be complacent. You should always be pushing yourself to try something different, just be a bit better. But no, it never, it never worked out the way I wanted it to. But then, you know, that's life. That's the way it is. Is that one of the things that um, moved you towards working on electronic music on your own? 
Yes, very much so. Um, I don't remember any of my school reports, but I bet they all said doesn't play with others. Um, you know, I, I much better be if, with me on my own. I'm the only person to argue with. And I, I can deal with that because I can usually win that one. But um, I'd always had an interest in electronic music. I, I Back on the Isle of Wight, you know, when we we're doing all this other stuff, I used to work for the local hospital radio. And I would quite often sneak in during the day to use the studio to, to start playing with tape loops. I'd have these massive tape loops running around the studio to make it a right mess. You know, they come flying off all over the place. And I had a, a whole load of synthesizers back then. I had a couple of beauties. I had a Korg MS-10 and an MS-20, which now they go for huge amounts of money. And back in 1993, I decided to leave the Isle of Wight, go to university, be a proper grown-up, and, you know, be a student, become proper. And that lasted about 10 minutes. But I'd sold most of my gear. I just kept one of my guitars and that was it. And I, I don't have many regrets, but selling those keyboards was one of them. And um, so, yes, there was an awful lot of me just sitting there making these weird noises and experimenting with sound and trying to shape sound and see what I could come up with. But it wasn't really until a few years ago that I, you know, when I started getting um, software synthesizers, that I was able to really start doing what I wanted to do with this stuff. And how quickly did that become something that you were starting to release? Quite quickly. Yeah, I did. It all happened um, through a friend of mine, Dave Hughes, who records as Cousin Silas. And um, I'd been listening to Cousin Silas for quite some time, not knowing that it was Dave Hughes. Now, Dave, I'd actually met 25 years ago when we were both editing science fiction fanzines. And, you know, he had his fans in. I had mine. I went up to see him in Yorkshire where he lives for a science fiction convention. And we'd been mates for years, but we'd lost contact. It was one of those things, you know, you'd, over time you sort of drift apart. And I'd been listening to a whole load of this modern, you know, sort of modern, more recent ambient music and thinking, I'd quite like to have a go at this. And Cousin Silas was one of those I was listening to a lot. Then one day I got a friend request on Facebook from Cousin Silas. And I thought, that's that's weird. I went into a sort of slight paranoid mode. You know, who's been, who's been watching me while I've been listening to this music? How do, how do they know? And then I got a message saying, hi, hi, Kev, it's Dave from Yorkshire. Do you remember me? He's like, oh, yeah, yeah. And um, he was recording and releasing stuff on a net label called We Are All Ghosts, which is run from um, a guy called Thomas Matthey, who's um, up in Scotland. And Dave's, Dave listened to a couple of my pieces that I sent him. And he said, you really, really, really need to put this stuff out this is good mm. and I just thought it's not it's just me messing about it's just me finding my way with this software I hadn't quite you know worked out how it worked yet they said no 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 you've got to do this and he sent a couple of pieces off to Thomas Thomas got in touch and said yeah well, come on please put an album together I'd like to put this out and that was it it was remarkably quick it was um I was having to write material for the first album because I hadn't got enough when they asked me to do it so it was very 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 quick when does this happen? How long ago did you start? Did you branch out into the into the electronic music? I knew you were going to ask me that, and I should have looked that up, and I forgot. <laughs> I can't remember now. It's been a few years now, about I'd say about five or six years. So it's you know it's been knocking around for a while. Haven't done as much recently as as I would like to. Um, in recent years, it's more been cut. Strangely enough, having said earlier that I don't play well with others, more recently, the, the stuff I've been doing has been collaborations with Cousin Silas. Um, normally in the summer, we couldn't do it this year because, you know, we're recording this in the middle of the whole COVID-19 thing, so we couldn't do it. But we'd normally get together at his place in Yorkshire 
I'd be there for a week and we'd record enough material for three or four albums worth of stuff. We're just incredibly creative. You know, we, we sort of bounce ideas off each other. And um, so recently it's been a lot of collaborations, but I have got all this material that I need to sort out and finish and get sent off. I'm interested in that um, that process of, of meeting up and, and starting to collaborate on, on uh, how, how much does that, for you, how much does that differ from when you were playing in bands and picking up your guitar? And do, do you still use your guitar in those sessions? Oh, very much so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, mo- mostly on my, my solo stuff, on the collaborate, collaborative stuff, Dave plays a lot of the guitar, though I have played some guitar on it. But yeah, the guitar still plays a huge part. It's, um, it's not always obvious that it is a guitar. And that's part of the part of the joy of doing this, is taking this guitar and making it not sound like a guitar um but yeah i mean it, it's still i find it's a, a lot happier collaboration because neither of us have particularly have egos i think you know because we're, we're we're gentlemen of a certain age and i think when you reach a certain age your ego does tend to take a bit of a back seat you kind of think oh is it really worth all the effort we might just as well be having fun with this mm-hmm. and you know we, we'll do it, it sort of happens in several ways. I mean, I'll just go up there and I'll start playing with, you know, his, his equipment there and his guitars or whatever. We'll start putting down some ideas. Then he'll add bits to it and I'll add bits to it. Other times I've recorded something and I've thought, I can't get this to work. There's something not right with this. I've got, it's got a nice sort of ambient drone. It's got a little bit of a sequence or whatever. But I, I don't know, there's something missing. And I send it to Dave and within a couple of days, he'll come back with something sounding absolutely astonishing. So, um, so yeah, it's it's a really nice collaboration. It's and really this is good. something you do normally in normal times. You get together for this week every year and just take your time. Yeah, yeah, we've done it. Um, yeah, four or five years now. But we do do stuff as well. I mean, you know, we'll just send stuff to each other and say, you know, what can you do with this? And sometimes, if I'm going to say, sometimes we never do, but we always do. There was one track that defeated Dave for a little while. I'd sent him something, and he couldn't find anything to add to it. And I was adamant he had to add something because it was it didn't sound right to me. And in the end, if I remember right, he just slowed it down a bit so that the it, it was a sequenced track, and he slowed it down a bit, and suddenly he got it. Suddenly the, it just clicked, and I thought I know exactly what this needs now. And hmm. um, that was and that was a that was a wonderful moment because it took him several months to work on that one, whereas normally we do it very quickly. Oh, those sorts of musical partnerships are just invaluable, aren't they? They're so hard to find and they're really precious. Yeah. And we, we've had, um, there's a guy called Tim Jones as well, who's often joined us on these sessions as well. And again, we've arrived at Dave's place up in Yorkshire. And after we stopped admiring the view, because it is an extraordinarily beautiful part of the world, mm. we'll settle into the studio. We won't go out again for five days. You know, we, maybe we'll go out to the local shop to, to top up on food, but mostly we just stay inside this room. And we have no preconceived ideas of what we're going to do when we turn up i think if we did it wouldn't work i think one year we did say we'd like to do something that was a bit motoric mm-hmm. you know that motoric mm-hmm. rhythm we wanted to do, we knew we wanted to do something with that but we that was it that was the only idea we had so you know i programmed a drum machine and said right, okay let, let's start playing stuff and see what happens and i love that spontaneity and i love the fact that we have no expectations and i think in the previous collaborations when i was in bands we all had expectations of each other possibly expectations certainly from from my point of view that were unachievable mm. 
And I think now we have no expectations of what we're going to do. And it still amazes us sometimes when we listen back to stuff and none of us can actually remember who did what. It's like listening to somebody else's piece of music. There's just this lovely sound coming out and kind of thinking, I might have done the drums on that one. Or maybe I did the guitar. I'm not quite sure. I can't remember. None of us can actually remember what we did on these things. Are you working from similar influences? Are you all bringing similar stuff into sessions? Yeah, um, and not just musically. Um, We're we're all big fans of, of science fiction and horror and fortiana you know weird things we've done several sort of concept albums built around that that very thing you know sort of pieces of music inspired by certain authors or inspired by certain moods certain sort of fortiana type moods you know what i mean by fortiana sort of Mm, ufos and weird stuff i mean i'm not particularly sure i believe in any of it but it makes for a nice a nice atmosphere when you're trying to record a piece of music to have that in mind so yeah we are all pulling from the same in the same direction and like i say me and dave used to edit science fiction magazines back in the day we were both writers as well wrote science fiction so we are very much sort of the music we do together is much more influenced by those kind of genres than sort of musically perhaps we you know we, we love the same thing we love brian you know we love tangerine dream all the rest of it but i think it, when we're together it's more coming from a literary influence and a musical one that sounds incredibly pretentious doesn't it i did warn you (laughs) (laughs) but i've listened to some of some of those um uh, the the ambient collaborations that you've that you've had and there was one in particular that was from a welsh author um yes um arthur macken yeah yeah yes that was and, and so that 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 was particularly affecting and you could and i've not read arthur macken but you could definitely right yeah uh the atmosphere that you're trying to create was it was definitely there it was you know it was a oh, thank you. yeah thank really enjoy really enjoyable and the whole kind of electronic and ambient music for me is is, is slightly a, a slightly mysterious area i have to say i don't i don't fully i don't fully get it I, but i can appreciate sure. it when i'm listening to it definitely um but it but the is the scene itself is it quite a supportive scene and what sort of life does your music have once you've got together and really i know you talked about the we're all ghosts label but yeah does it does it go beyond that what sort of life does your music have yeah i mean you know it's it's turned up this surprised me I, i was staggered that there are ambient radio stations on the internet and, you know, I, I, who would have thought that, you know, who would have thought that there are radio stations that just play sort of 20 minute droning tracks, you mm. know, who thought, but yeah, you know, so I've, I've been played on a few of those social media plays a huge part in these things. You know, the people are very, very, very supportive. You get other people come on and say, that was really great. Can we do something together? So you end up doing a track together mm. and it's a lovely little scene. It's not at all like the rock scene that I was in where everybody was kind of competing with each other. There was a lot of backbiting. There was a lot of sort of, you know, it basically was a bun- bunch of young blokes all sort of squaring up to each other, showing off their musical muscles, you know, whereas mm. this is much more supportive and much more, I don't know, it's much more nurturing, this scene, I find, which suits me now that I've got old and I'm not really into that sort of thing anymore, you know. Is it, well, it, does, it feels like that, um, it's part of what you were searching for with your music and you've kind of found the thing that fits for you. And you're talking about yes. it in an age-related yeah. terms, but like in creatively speaking, it fits what you were looking for maybe. 
Definitely. And, you know, all, all those influences I had in the past, they're all still there in this music. I mean, you might listen to the music and think, well, where's the yes influence in that? But it is there for me. I can I can hear it. I can feel it mm. that, you know, I listen to a piece of music by a favorite band and I think I want to make some music now. It won't sound like that. But I want to make some music now because I've been inspired because they've done it. There are very obvious influences in it. The Tangerine Dream stuff, the Cocteau Twins. I think you can hear some Cocteaus in there with the guitar work. But everything that I've done up to now has been an influence. And it has all sort of, this is the point where I think I should have been years ago. Mm. And, you know, maybe if I could have afforded all those big fancy synthesizers, I would have done. But, you know, that's been one of the great technological advances is that this stuff is now so easily accessible that, you know, you can get these incredible synthesizers mm. on your computer. Um, I, I recently bought... Um, a Hammond B3 emulator. I'd always wanted a Hammond B3 organ. Of course I did, prog rock. Why, why would yeah. you not? And I bought this emulator and my God, it sounds fantastic. Really? And, you know, I, I was nearly in tears playing that because I thought this is what I've always wanted. You know, And of course, you know, I'm now not doing that stuff. I'm making drone sounds with it and so on, but it still sounds, still sounds remarkable. And I, I still, I still, I'm still staggered that this, this gear is accessible to people. It's wonderful. It's been a real sort of, um, it's been a real liberator having all this this equipment at hand, and it's all sitting there on my on my computer. Wonderful. And because of the the sort of cinematic quality of the music that you make, are there kind of imagined films running alongside the music that you're making? Yeah, very much so. Um, quite often, I will actually have a film running in the background with the sound down. You know, 2001 has, is my favourite film of all time. And, you know, if, if I'm ever stuck for inspiration, you sit the Stargate on and you just start playing along to it and something inevitably comes from it. You know, and there are other films, you know, the, it's all about cap, trying to capture the feel of it. You know, there are tracks that I listen to and I think that's my alternative. God, this will sound incredibly pretentious, but this this is my alternative soundtrack to Blade Runner. How the hell could you have an alternative track soundtrack to Blade Runner? It's so perfect. Why would anybody want to do that? But I, I, I write a piece of music. I think, yeah, that's what's in my head when I'm watching Blade Runner and Van Gallis isn't playing. That's what's that's what I'm hearing going along. Christ, I'm pretentious. No, that's <laughs> great. I love that. I think that's I think that's brilliant. Yeah. Uh, what What are some of the other? Um, I remember because Ben and I play in a band and Paul, the singer, was going through a uh, period of struggling to get lyrics finished. And, and mm. so he would he would put himself in a in in, in um, a, a studio space and to get himself in, in a similar way that you're using 2001, he would put on Tarkovsky films and, yes. you know, and have yeah. have those and just kind of sit and, and just to create the right kind of headspace to get into that that zone that it you know to free op open his of head course, up and yeah yeah and i i totally get that because it's like you know we all struggle to try and find inspiration in music which is understandable because we're making music but i think sometimes you know step back and try and take music take um inspiration from films from books you know i'm a big fan of, of the writer william gibson and to get over writer's block, I just go back, or you know, musical writer's block. Go and reread Neuromancer, because the images that that he's he's his prose is so poetic. You know that when you're the opening line, the sky above the pause was the colour of television tuned to a dead channel. 
I mean, that yeah. just sums up so many images that you just want to turn into music, you know. And um, if you if you go through my back catalogue, you will find references. I think there's a song called um, "City Lights Receding," which is a a phrase from from New Romancer. So you know, you're reading it, you're thinking, "Oh God, I want to try and capture the soundtrack of that." What the film that's running in my head of New Romancer? What would my soundtrack to it sound like? So, yeah, you know, you take your inspiration where you can find it, really. And it doesn't always have to come from music. Has your music found its way into any films? Yes. Um, there was, I found by, by accident, I can't remember what it's called, but there was a short film that some guys had made. And I had to have a word with them because they hadn't credited me on it. And I don't mind them using the music. That's fine. I don't want to get paid for it. Just, you know, have the decency to say what it is so that people can go and find it elsewhere. And there was, um, I think Dave found an episode of a French science fiction television program, which had used some of our music that wow, we've yeah. done together. So it has turned up in a few places. And um, if there are any filmmakers out there listening, he says, plugging furiously, you want to use any of this stuff, it's out there. Please do just credit me. End of plug. Carry on. Have you ever taken your creative talents into, into sort of writing screenplay at all? No. Um, I'm very much the sort of person who likes to sort of sit on the outside of the film industry and sort of, you know, research it and sort of snipe about films, but not actually sort of get his hands dirty and write. I don't think I've got the talent for that, to be honest. Um, I've had lots of ideas over the years, but actually sitting down, screenwriting is, as soon as you start trying to do it, you realise just what an incredibly difficult skill that is. You know, it, it's not like, writing a short story or something it, it's such a, a particular talent and i it's one i don't have so i'm quite happy to let other people do that and then i'll moan about how bad it is but i won't actually go and write one myself because you know it is a craft isn't it although uh, th th this is a perfect opportunity to mention that the encyclopedia of fantastic film and television which is your um uh, uh, website you, yes. and archive which is filled with fantastic writing uh, and oh, thank film you. criticism, and not, uh, I have to say, I I love it, and and the um, it's a vast resource. I mean, over thirty six thousand pages now. I mean, it's 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 thirty six thousand pages on the encyclopedia, and over I think about thousand five hundred reviews on the review sites. So oh. yeah, there's there's a lot. It's uh, there's something to be said for being an insomniac without many friends. It gives you an awful <laughs> lot of time to, to do all this stuff. You know? Ah, that explains it. <laughs> that's, but, that's the secret. Don't but, have friends and don't sleep. You, you get all sorts of stuff done. Trust me. How how do you choose what to cover? Now you're that deep into it. I mean, there's it's vast. Well, with the reviews, there is a pattern to my reviews, where I'm not going to tell you what it is because you can go away and have a look and see if you can work it out for yourself. But there is actually a, a try and work out what I'm doing. It's, it's, it may not be that clear, but there is a pattern to the reviews. The, um, the encyclopedia part of it, it's basically whatever I feel like putting on that day, whatever I've got information on um, that I, I can trust. You know, they, I, I get a lot of the credits for the films directly from the films themselves. I've gone from pretentious to nerdy now, haven't I? I can hear people nodding <laughs> off to sleep already. You know, like, God, really, this is what he does with his time. But, um, but yeah, so it, it's kind of, again, it's one of those things because I run it on my own. That little bit of ego that I've still got sort of allows me to just do whatever I want to. And if other people like it, brilliant. I'm really, really pleased that other people like it. But like the music, I don't do it for other people. I do it because I enjoy it. I enjoy the process of doing it. And then if somebody, if one person comes along 
and says, I like that review or I like that piece of music. Excellent. I'm happy then to move on to the next one. I'm not, you know, it is just done really for me. And if other people like it, that's just the icing on the cake. Well, the right the writing is just is brilliant. I love I love the the, the honesty you. of the reviews and and the but also it's really encouraging of people to go and seek out other stuff. It's it's a methodical and careful approach to go going through a film and pointing out its merits, even if it's a dodgy movie or a bit of a a bit of a turkey. You will you there's will, a lot of them on the site. Yeah. <laughs> well, you'll go out of your way to point stuff out, even if it's on the whole not a, not a very um, satisfying watch, which I think is great. I, I love that about it. It's, there's a, a real well, fairness to that. That's very kind of you to say. I'm, I, I'm glad you took that from that. And it, it, one of the nicest things you can say about, I think to anybody who writes a film review is I'm inspired now to go and watch that film. You know, it's, it's, like, it's not my job to tell you what you should think about a film. That's not what the site's about. The site is about what I think about the film. But if you read it and think, wow, that sounds interesting, I'll give that a go. You know, don't come back to me afterwards and say, Lions, you're an idiot. That was bloody terrible. You were saying how great. Don't, don't come and do that to me. But if I've inspired you, to, and even if you do go watch it and you don't like it, well, at least you've watched something that you may not have watched before. Indeed. I think that's all anybody that writes about films could ever ask for is that you sort of inspire someone to go and watch a film, you know, and uh, hopefully a, you get it, something from it as much as you do. It's a it's a rabbit hole, your site as well, isn't it? <laughs> My goodness, <laughs> it, it is. I mean, I get lost in it sometimes. I must admit. And the sort of the you're talking about connections you've made, getting feedback from people. The kind of um, in this day and age, the kind of global connections that you can make with people. How has that been through through that through that site? Again, that that's been staggering, to be honest. Um, you know, when when I first started doing music, and I used to write reviews for fanzines back in the in the eighties, and they would, you know, the music would get heard by people on the Isle of Wight. The reviews would get read by people around the country. Maybe one or two in America who bought the fanzine. Now, all of a sudden, my music and my writing is accessible to anybody. And I go and look at the stats on, on my site and there's people coming from Thailand, Japan, Australia. And you're just thinking, it, it, it adds a kind of, it's not pressure really, but it sort of is in a way because you're thinking, I've got more responsibility now. I've got to, I've got to be careful here because I've got all these people from all over the world sort of tuning into what I'm saying. It's not just me sort of standing in a in a hall somewhere in, in on the Isle of Wight playing a guitar. Now it's like people all over the world are listening to this. And it's um, it's a wonderful feeling. I mean, you know, that that's where the ego does come back in. You know, that's uh, that's lovely that someone in Japan has just heard your piece of music or has just read your review. You just think, oh yeah, that that's good. That this this, this that's made my day. I'm happy now. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I think that resonates for both of us, doesn't it? Does it does indeed, mate. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's good, isn't it? It's a lovely feel. It's a lovely feeling knowing that somewhere out there, possibly right now as we're speaking, someone is engaging with something you've created. And that is such a lovely feeling. And it's like, I don't care if they engage with it and think, God, that was awful. They're, just, they're engaging. It doesn't matter. You know, they're, they're sort of all that work that you've put into that, people are getting something from it and that's all that matters yeah it's all about connections isn't it yeah it is absolutely right yeah absolutely yeah. right um have you got future plans for other uh, creative projects is there anything new that you're embarking upon i've been 
attempting to re-record a lot of our old songs, particularly giving it sort of a, the, the prog rock sort of stuff. Because um, prog rock never died. I will not have this. You know, it, it's still around. People still love it. And I'm going to do it anyway, even if you don't love it. And um, w- what's been remarkable with that is having done ambient music and electronic music for so long, well, a lot of it is very automated. You can set things up, you know, note at a time almost. Having to go back and actually play instruments, I've suddenly realized just how much I've lost. And that's been quite a nice experience because I'm now having to relearn a lot of skills with musical instruments that I never had before, mm. and, or I did have and, and have lost, but also, you know, things I've never had before. My, my, my lovely brother, who's a fantastic drummer, he sent me his old electronic drum kit as a birthday present, and I've never played drums in my life. And um, you'd know it if you heard me. You'd yeah. know that I'd never played in my life. But that's a challenge. That's my next challenge. I want to learn to play the drums, you know, and I, there's always something new to learn. There's always I've I've just as we speak I've just ordered a hurdy gurdy, oh, so watch oh, out wow. for some ambient hurdy gurdy in future. So There's that, some hurdy gurdy on some of, on one of your tracks, is there not? Was it sampled hurdy gurdy? That was a sample. Yeah, that, yeah. I, I know the track you're talking about. That was on. Um, that's actually taken, if I remember. I probably shouldn't say this. We'll get sued for this, but <laughs> it's from a, one of the BBC MR James adaptations. You know, the ghost story for Christmas oh, yeah. it's from Lost Hearts, and it's is got it? that sort of. Yeah, that zither sort of sound. And um, we've been watching them, watching all the... This is an example of how, how inspiration can work. We'd been watching these uh, these films up, up in Yorkshire and, and Thomas had been slightly freaked out by one of them called Lost Hearts. So we thought, we know what we'll do. We'll take that that little bit of zither music from Lost Hearts. We'll stick it on the beginning of this track just to freak, freak Thomas out when he actually hears it. Because that's the kind of guys we are, you know. But that, that's how that, that's how the inspiration can work, that you can watch something and think, I want to write a piece of music now that incorporates not just that sound, but that that feeling, that sort of ambience of that of that story. So, yeah, that's 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 how you got that. But you will, you will yeah, there will be some ambient hurdy-gurdy, God help us. <laughs> Paul, the singer from our band, sent me a link to a, a, a DIY build-your-own-hurdy-gurdy kit the other day. That's the very one I'm getting. That's the one I'm getting. You should be here any day now. I'm going to build it, and I'm going to sort of crank away at it, and I'm going to make all sorts of wonderful sounds. So, <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll, send, I'll send you links to that one when that one comes out. <laughs> but, yeah, there's, there's a lot going on. There's a lot going on. It's just... Um, find the time and the, the wherewithal to get on with it so, yeah indeed it's, it's a, there's an interesting um link between you, you're talking about prog not dying and and going back and revisiting and re-recording your music we interviewed mick garris who um yes. re, who after 40 odd years or whatever reconvened with his band his prog rock band the one and only band mm-hmm. that he was in and and released their music and it's a brilliant thing it's it's a really great you know prog album yeah i mean you know why not go back to this stuff you know why why should this stuff be festering away in your past you know it's like okay maybe no one's going to be interested maybe no one's going to want to listen to it but i'm going to have fun doing it and that's that's kind of i was going to say that's half the battle that's about 90 percent of the battle as long as i'm enjoying it and then the 10 percent is if someone else comes along and says hey nice one kev i like that. that that was good then then that's you know that's that's lovely as well well, it's been really fantastic talking yeah. to you. Um, I, I feel like we've sort of come to a natural 
end there ben is there anything in your notes that you that you want to bring oh, we no, have a section no. called ben's final tangential question <laughs> which has started to creep into this show. oh uh, i've which... gone off on so many tangents I've, I've probably sort of worn the poor guy out to yeah, be honest i think, I think uh, unfortunately there's no tangential question this week mate oh our listeners I'm are going to really be so sorry. disappointed After, it only appears for one week <laughs> <laughs> give, give me a couple of minutes. I'll go off on a tangent. You know, I'll find something for you if you're really desperate for a tangent. So. Well, before we let you go, we need to ask you if there's any um, names of your bands that you haven't shared with us yet, because the, the ones that you have have been fantastic. <laughs> oh, you'll like this one. Um, we were in a we, we formed a rock covers band. We just got fed up of doing all the other stuff. We thought we'd just do covers, you know. So that was great. We did knocking on heaven's door, all the usual stuff, all yeah. the rest of it. And we couldn't think of a name. We didn't want to be memory theatre. And, and uh, the rhythm guitarist in the band, Ian, had got a poster which was called Antarctic Fire. And so we thought we'd be Antarctic Fire. Excellent. We went along to our first gig and the guy who was announcing all the bands, and this was one of those sort of multi, multi-band gigs, he, he misheard us and he announced us as Electric Fire. <laughs> and you know, it's like a little, little heater or something. It's like, <laughs> so yeah, <laughs> so, th- so that one didn't last very long, it has to be said. <laughs> oh, that's terrible. <laughs> Kev, thank you so much. It's been brilliant. Oh, thank you for having me. It's been really good fun. Oh, thank yeah. you so much. Can we, can we just finish with you introducing the song that folks are going to hear now, please? Yes, this is a, a track called uh, The Moon Rises Over Berlin. It's an extract from a longer piece, which will eventually find its way onto a, a concept album, because, of course, it will be a concept album, an old hippie. Of course, it's going to be a concept album called Cities in Flight. And, uh, yeah, this is an extract from The Moon Rises Over Berlin. Thanks, Kev.
Songs from a Padded Envelope is presented, produced and edited by Steve Swindon and Ben Clay. Music is by state-sponsored Jukebox. Artwork is by Matt Canning. Songs from a Padded Envelope is a Hidden Hive production. <laughs>